We've been doing this for a few months now, and we want to hear from our listeners. And we also want to know what it's going to take for you to get your friends and neighbors to listen as well. So how can we make this podcast better? What do you want to hear? Go to onecountryproject.com forward slash feedback to share your inputs and your thoughts. What do you think of the hot dish? Does it taste very good? (laughs) We want to know. Go ahead and let us know. We can take it. We're recovering politicians. Go to onecountryproject.com forward slash feedback. Take the survey. Uh, We want to give you the best podcast we can. uh, So just let us hear from you. And and if you like me better than Joel, make sure you note that in the yeah. in you'd the comments. Be, you'd be probably the first one at the VFW. <laughs> Hi, this is Heidi. We just finished our first meeting of the One Country Project um, and have incredible uh, uh, news about how well we've been doing and everything that we've been talking about. And with me is the rest of our board of directors, absent Joe Donnelly, who always seems to be a little absent, right? Yeah, well, he's probably still back in Indiana um, doing what he needs to do to to get the fighting Irish across the finish line <laughs> on whatever sport he's looking at. But we wanted to, um, I think, uh, just kind of do a recap on where we think we are. And a lot of us are getting questions about um, what do we do and why are we doing it and how in the end will it make a difference. And we're going to start out with you, J.D., because J.D. actually is in the mix. Um, uh, The rest of us just kind of uh, uh, serve, but you are um, actually in this cycle running for what is it, the Iowa 4th? Yep, uh, Iowa's 4th Congressional four, District. Yep, Four congressional districts, and this is a repeat performance for you. Um, what changes do you see in rural attitudes um, this time as compared to two years ago? Well, I think you see, uh, especially in our district, which is the second most agriculture-producing district in America, we see a lot of just frustration. Uh, we don't know where the markets are. We don't know... Uh, a, a lot of things. And, and what we're seeing is this administration uh, says one thing and then does another. And so uh, there's a lot of uncertainty. And especially since uh, August 9th, when the, the last uh, uh, refinery waivers for uh, ethanol uh, yeah, kind of passed. Can you explain that? Because a lot yeah. of people, you know, everybody's looking at the China trade war as kind of the pivotal economic event. But for those of us who live in rural America, who's, where corn has been king, it's these waivers that have uh, a much more dramatic effect. Absolutely. And, and uh, I think ultimately right now, there's it's the oil industry versus uh, the farmers, and uh, the oil industry is winning out. And so I view it as if Coke controlled Pepsi, how well would Pepsi do? And, <laughs> and, and what we're seeing, uh, the small refinery waivers are meant for uh, the smaller refineries who would find it economic hardship uh, to blend 15 billion or, or part of the 15 billion uh, gallons of ethanol that's, that's uh, uh, mandated to be in our transportational fuels. And what we've seen out of this administration is uh, just handing those things out like uh, candy on Halloween. And as a result, uh, our farmers uh, are uh, leaving way more grain in the bin. It's depressed our corn prices by up to 40 cents a bushel. And we've had a, uh, two plants go idle and two plants close in my district alone, ethanol plants. And this is, is it doesn't make the news as much, but this is where we're seeing uh, Trump supporters 
actually turning their back in, in where I'm from. So, so you're you're more optimistic that um, people will be more open-minded, willing to at least consider voting for a Democrat because of the economic conditions in agriculture. A hundred percent. And and but we also, as Democrats, have to give them a reason to vote for Absolutely. us. And so we just can't assume they're going to vote for us. And so that's one of the big things. Being in Iowa during the caucus season, I'm really pushing a lot of these 2020 candidates saying there's a huge opportunity here. Let's take advantage of it. We're going to turn to Anthony Daniels, who is the fabulous and amazing um, uh, emerging leader in this great state of Alabama um, and has been serving as the minority leader in the House of Representatives, but also just an incredible thought leader on what the new rural America looks like in the South. And I think that one of the things that we tried to do, because we're pretty comfortable talking North Dakota, Iowa, but, you know, I don't know a lot about rice. I know a lot about cotton. I don't know a lot about, you know, in fact, we pick on your peanut farmers um, because we think you guys always get some advantage because you Southern guys hang together when we're doing the farm bill. <laughs> but um, one of the things that I think is really misunderstood is this idea that states like Georgia and Alabama, Mississippi and Louisiana, um, that, that there is no uh, opportunity for Democrats to advance or at least present uh, a, a new idea that's going to catch fire. Now, those used to be solid um, before civil rights. These used to be solid Democrat territory. And we're proud of what turned them Republican. We just need to turn them back uh, Democrat. And so um, tell us about your work. Tell us how you think it's different than what you ju just heard J.D. talk about and what we can do um, to not just build one country urban rural, but one country rural, you know, Great Plains to um, southern rural. Well, thank you, Heidi. I, I think for me, uh, one of the things to put it in perspective, uh, before 2010, uh, Alabama um, Democrats had three constitutional offices as well as supermajority in both the House and the Senate. And so it wasn't that Nobody long really ago. Nobody really would know that if you didn't <laughs> It wasn't just that say long it. ago. Uh, but I think what, where we are today is uh, a combination of of really not building infrastructure in the South. Uh, one, the Republicans knew that if they uh, go, went after the unions, uh, the teachers' union, and other organizations that have been traditional Democratic strongholds or, or supporters in, in providing infrastructure um, outside of the Democratic Party, that they would be able to destroy the Democratic Party. And so they were very successful at doing that. And what has happened is Democrats have not... Uh, in Alabama, uh, we've not bounced back from that. And so right now we're on our way um, back and we're trying to be smarter and, and make certain that w when we come back this time that it's more, it's, it's sustainable long term, not just, you know, something that's just instant. And so I think one of the things that we have to do and continue to do is um, have conversations with our friends in rural America. Uh, one of the things that we have to realize is that rural America is very diverse. In rural America, I would put up against any urban area or suburban area in this country. Uh, and so I think what we have to turn the conversations toward is opportunity and innovation. Uh, we know that our farmers are being hit uh, really hard in Alabama. Alabama exports to in agriculture is about $2 billion. 
And right now, uh, we're not even uh, we're not even at a billion dollars. And so uh, it's 50 percent decrease in more in, than 50 uh, percent. And, and you think if just so people understand, that's new wealth creation for the state of Alabama. So when you're not getting a billion dollars, that means there's a billion dollars less in that economy that's going to buy pickup trucks and going to go to the movie theater and go to restaurants. I mean, it has a huge impact, you know, kind of multiplying down through through the through the economy. It's it's forced a lot of our farmers, especially our mid uh, to um, large farmers, to start filing bankruptcy. And they're, you know, regardless of the the um, subsidies that's provided from the federal government, I don't see them being able to um, recover uh, from the, the hits that they've taken. And so, you know, right now, what's going on in Alabama, not just agriculture, but also the tariffs and the impact that they're having on our automobile industry. We have Hyundai, Mercedes, uh, and a number of other car manufacturers, Toyota, Toyota Mazda in Alabama. And so that's impacting our economy and, the, and job opportunities and growth in the state of Alabama. And so uh, our community, our folks are starting to feel it. And so you're starting to hear folks kind of mumble under their breath uh, about pushing back on the policies of this president and this administration. And so those are things we just have to make certain that we're we're the party of solutions and talk about what we're for and how we're going to get there. So that we give them reason to go on our side. You know, they would rather be non-affiliated politically than to be a Democrat in many instances because of the national brand. But in Alabama, I consider myself as being an Alabama Democrat. And when you brand an Alabama Democrat, you still have to define it. And so that's what Senator Jones is is doing right now is is showing that he can work across the aisle and that he's about Alabama, uh, not Party politics is fine, but being able to represent the state. When you're a representative or a senator and once you're elected, your job is to really represent the interests of the entire state. Mm -hmm. And that's what he's doing in Alabama, and we're very fortunate to have someone like him and others. And that's why it's so beautiful to be a part of one country. He's such a principled leader, and, and, I mean, I just have incredible hope for Alabama, knowing you and Doug, and I know that you guys are— are listening to the people that you serve, and that's going to make all the difference. It's going to make the difference because I think that uh, it's pretty easy for the Republicans to take uh, people for granted and and say, well, they're always going to be with me. You know, that's not a problem. I'm just going to continue to uh, promote economic policies that decimate their livelihood. That's only going to go so long, right? Well, they're already seeing it, the pushback, uh, as a result of the 13 hospitals that have closed in the state of Alabama. And these communities, when those hospitals are closing and they're the largest employer for the next for about 40, 50 miles or more. And so, you know, that that kills the town and and the employment opportunities for and the hope for those individuals that are in those communities. You know, the community colleges can't produce enough nurses and and and, and other folks to be able to retain those communities because what job what opportunities do they have when their hospitals are closing in record numbers? And so we're one of the few states that decided not to expand Medicaid and we're seeing uh financial where the financial impact on that is killing us. Think about all the money you left on the table. You know, Medicaid was a 90-10 at, at, at worst match. Um, and so 90% of that health care cost, um, you know, we took it in North Dakota. Guess what? You're subsidizing my Medicare, Medicaid expansion, and, and you're not getting health care. I mean, it's just I think it's malpractice for any governor, any legislature not to expand Medi- uh, Medicaid. It's just nuts. 
I agree. We've left behind them more than 300,000 people that would wow. have access to it. And how much money for your health care system? Oh, my God. It's it's about a $1.5 billion yeah, think um, about that. impact. Yeah, we're yeah. the same. We haven't expanded and, either. And um, we're going to turn and talk to Ashton about her willingness to join us, although we're going to do a separate interview with you on that. But um, I, I want to just... Um, kind of bring this full circle. And I want to acknowledge it's great to have another woman. Woohoo! <laughs> Always the, a good um, thing. <laughs> One Country Project. And, uh, you know, Ashen, tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us a little bit about why you think this is such an important discussion to have um, addressing uh, the concerns of rural America through the One Project. Yes. So I'm Ashton Clemens, a state representative from North Carolina and North Carolina, uh, Greensboro, Guilford County. And I this is my first term in the legislature and have spent my life very passionate about our traditional public schools and was a teacher, school principal, and a district assistant superintendent before I ran for office. So I want you to give JD the eye that principals give every kid who comes in. <laughs> yes, exactly. I've seen that look before. Yes, yes <laughs> it's bet, a popular look. Um, yeah, it comes in handy. Uh, actually, a lot from being a school principal translates to the legislature. Hurting <laughs> <laughs> cats, yes. getting yes, people to play well with others. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Um, so I'm deeply passionate about our public schools and have spent my life in our schools where we weren't really doing what we needed to do for kids and was able to serve as a principal of a turnaround school where we were the lowest school in North Carolina and school of the year, my third year, we made dramatic growth. And so that really is my true love. And in North Carolina, we similarly had a major shift in 2010. We had had Democratic uh, leadership for mo- most of the history before that. And um, we have really our rep- Republican legislature, in my opinion, is full out of salt in our public schools. And so that's how I ended up running and being in the legislature. But then am specifically excited to be here in North Carolina Like many states, um, we have great urban centers and a great history of agriculture and farming. And our state is great because we have both of those. And unfortunately, too often we have a conversation where one is pitted against the other. And that's why I'm excited about the work that's happening here in one country, because really our state is about lifting all of those boats. And until we are... Singling, singling out the issues to rural people in our state and across our country, we're not going to address them in the ways that we know we need to. So I'm excited to be part of this. Well, I mean, I think that when you look at kind of the progress that we've been able to make, and it, you know, those of us who came together and you guys signed on pretty early, and Ashton, you're just coming in now. But when Joe and Donnelly and I sat down and kind of envisioned this, it was born out of our experience, which is that the Democratic Party has left. Um, rural America behind. And you still hear it. You still hear in the dialogue that, well, we don't really need to worry about those people. We're just going to speak to our base. And if we get high base turnout, we're not going to to lose. We're going to win. And it was interesting because in your recent special election in North Carolina, um, you know, again, when you look at those numbers, it's, you know, they turned out record numbers in the s- suburbs and the urban area, but yet still failed to get the majority. 
because they didn't do better, in fact, did worse in, in rural America, in the, that rural county. And so, you know, our desire is, is to not just win elections, but to unite this country and quit looking for, for divisions. And so I'm curious, you, um, as you watched that uh, congressional race, what, what advice would you give to anyone who's in that spot with maybe a plus 12 uh, Republican district that needs to address um, uh, rural concerns in a state like North Carolina? What would you tell them to focus on? I think that rural voters are working hard to make sure that their families are taken care of. And they want politicians, candidates who are going to their communities and hearing what that means for them and putting their needs and interests forward ahead of any standard answer that either Democrat or Republican Party is going to talk about. And so I think many of our congressional districts in North Carolina, we have 11, are there's an urban part, but they also have rural rural voters. And we're not going to win those until we are certainly turning out votes in our urban centers, but also turning out votes in all of the rural parts of didn't, those didn't districts. Didn't you recently have a redistricting challenge? Well, yes. So, so, what, our state, so tell us yes. about that. Well, our state legislative maps uh, were had to be redrawn this year. They were determined unconstitutionally partisan gerrymandered. They had already been racially gerrymandered unconstitutionally, so they've already been redrawn once. So we had a new set of redraws. That is... Uh, that happened in the in September, and that we the plaintiffs filed a challenge to not accept the new maps. We st- we voted unanimously against them. The Democrats did in the House. We feel like it still continues with the problems of our past. But in the meantime, because the precedent has now been set against our state constitution, uh, the congressional maps have been challenged to that same Superior Court panel that just made our legislative state maps. And so we're waiting to see. We're supposed to have filing in December, which is the earliest we've ever had it. And the court order, at when they originally made the decision, they retained the right to change primary dates, to change filing dates, because that's been a constant excuse. We don't have time before the primary or filing. Um, and so they said, we'll change those if we have to. So wow. it's it will be an interesting time in North Carolina. Hopefully, at both the state legislative level and at the U.S. congressional level, we will have more fair districts. Um, I well, think that's what's right. Anyone who doesn't think this matters, I introduce you to the state of Pennsylvania. And and the state courts um, have been much more protective of voting rights of, of people by saying you cannot gerrymand these districts. Every vote should count equally. And, J.D., you know, obviously, um, you know, Ashton's in a state that's probably going to gain congressional seats. Everybody forgets how big North Carolina is. Mm-hmm. Um, Mike Easley, who I don't know if you yeah. know Mike, he's a dear friend of mine. We were AGs together. He used to remind me about how big North Carolina and was. growing. Yes, yes, I know. We, we hope we're going to have another congressional I, seat I, after I've our been census. indoctrinated. That's my <laughs> I point. Love it. I know how big you are, but eleven congressional seats—that's yeah. huge. Mm-hmm. And, but but you have four in in Iowa, and hope that you hang on to them, right? Yeah, I think we're fairly safe this time. But uh, we've gone uh, growing up. Uh, when I was uh, first uh, growing up, we had seven, and now we're down to four. And yeah, so, you think about that, and yeah. and so so I I think when you look at the opportunity that we have to make inroads and to to actually have a conversation with rural voters, you can't do that 
unless you have a conversation. And I think your point, Ashley, is so well taken, which is, you know, what, what do rural voters expect? They expect people to show up and listen and then not just show up empty-handed, show up with good ideas, show up with, a, with uh, some challenges, and just kind of gradually represent the kind of um, value but also logical, common-sense leadership that people in rural America have come to expect. Um, one of the questions I have, and it's probably a little more loaded, which is growing up in a state like North Dakota and in a community of 90 people, you know, the, the person no one wanted at their supper table was the guy who bragged, the guy who lied, the guy who talked about how much money he gave someone but didn't really give anybody anything, the guy who, you know, maybe cheated his neighbor a little bit and didn't pay his bills. He just didn't like that guy. That guy was, I mean, you maybe have been nice to him at church because that's what you do. You all go to church together. But he's not your best friend, and he certainly was never the mayor of your town. Why is it that we have a president who consistently doesn't tell the truth? He cheats people. I mean, you know, here he's continuing the trend that he had for not paying his bills now by not paying the cities their security fees when he does these rallies. It's just completely consistent. He bullies people. He brags about stuff that he doesn't do. I mean, you, you know, you wouldn't even tolerate that in your next door neighbor, but yet we're so willing. And, and, and in rural America, where you think those hardcore, you know, values uh, voters are that they're so willing to tolerate it. Yeah, I mean, not only that, we have a, a New York billionaire. Yeah, <laughs> like just there's so many. Uh, I just head scratching. Yeah, is well, he a yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. But but it's one of those. We things. have a New York land developer, right? Exactly, and and I just it it just I scratch my head on. Uh, I understand why a lot of folks uh, wanted something different where where I'm from, but uh, and that's why I don't know. I I see a lot of folks where I'm from are looking elsewhere, and so that's why I'm so. Uh, um, excited about what we're trying to do and 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 being that voice of saying, my, hey. My, my brother uh, has an expression. He always says, well, would you throw him the keys in, to the car in the bar fight? <laughs> <I love it. laughs> right? And, you know, is he somebody you could dress would hang around and not leave you behind? And the answer probably is no. no. You wouldn't throw him the keys no, to your car. No, he sells car. the car. <laughs> so so I want to, yeah, before, before we wrap it up, I want to talk a little bit because you're all – in states that will likely have very competitive, very expensive um, Senate races. Mm -hmm. And so I want to talk a little bit about that. But I I just, Anthony, having to gotten to know you, I have so much hope and faith that the South will reflect um, uh, more collaborative middle-class values, that there won't be this, you know, uh, uh, huge disparity that the Democratic Party can come back. And I think there's so many people who would say, well, Doug Jones can't can't make it. There's no way he can make it happen. What 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 do you tell folks in this town, you know, Washington, D.C., when they kind of write Doug off? Well, I would tell them that um, in Alabama in the last cycle, and so let's go back to 2014. In 2014, in the governor's race, there were about 400 and something thousand Democrats that voted. And fast forward to 2017, uh, for Doug Jones, there was approximately 600 and something thousand Democrats voted. In 2018, without all of the um, organizations parked in Alabama on the ground, uh, there was about uh, 700 and something thousand Democrats that voted, uh, folks that voted Democrat. 
And so then you have, when you break it down by race, uh, you have about uh, 400 and something thousand African-Americans voted with about 400,000 that did not vote. And so I think one of the things that we have to look at is the difference in a U.S. Senate in a presidential race or any statewide office in Alabama is getting the folks that are already on our side, turning them out to vote. Uh, Oftentimes we like to run right of center campaigns, but history tells us that that's not necessarily working. You know, you may peel off a small percentage of folks on the other side, but if you're not getting your folks out, you're leaving you're leaving something on the table. And so I would say that there are 400 and something thousand people uh, that we're leaving on the table, that we're not organizing. And that 400,000 makes the difference in a U.S. Senate race. Now, now I want to ask you this because there's 400,000 and you're myopically focused. We've talked about this before on those 400,000. Why aren't they voting? Because traditionally we've developed platforms that um, in a general election, we develop platforms that appeal to right of center. Uh-huh. And so you stop talking to the folks that got you to the dance or that can get you to the dance. And so what we have to do is start talking about issues that they traditionally care about, like prison reform and education and opportunity. I think that we've, we've allowed ourselves to focus on the big and shiny, the issues that are coming out of New York or California that may be prior, prior, a priority for those yeah. folks but not a priority yeah. for the folks in I, Alabama. I don't need to mean to pick on your state, but, you know. <laughs> no, seriously, I don't mean to pick on your state. But look at look at poverty levels. Look at childhood poverty levels. Look at how you pay your teachers. Look at all of the kind of measurements that we, we believe are significant in terms of measuring a healthy state and a healthy economy. I mean, you're not there in Alabama. We're, we're not, and but I, I will tell you that um, – our infrastructure is not there either. Yeah. And so we have the worst gerrymandered districts in the United States. Uh, we're the first to make the ch- uh, to challenge. Um, we ended up coming back through the legislature and still got it wrong again. And so, you know, when people are picking their constituents instead of their constituents picking their elected officials, there's always going to be a problem. And so that's what's happening in Alabama. That's why we have the sixth worst uh, infant mortality rate in the country. That's why we have a horrible uh, maternal mortality rate. That's why we're last in education. That's why we're among 46 in, in health care. But I see a demographics moving into the state of Alabama in places like the Huntsville area, Madison County, where we were, uh, we're focusing on high-tech jobs. And so we're recruiting folks from out of state. And so that's changed our demographics, voting demographics in Alabama to from 36 percent Democrat to about 48 in the last election. And so we're aggressively moving in the right direction. It's just that our engagement, the voter engagement piece is where we're missing in the messaging. And we don't have the infrastructure to do it. You know, I think if you go out and talk to people. So what do you want your state to look like? What do you think would be a measurement of success for your state? And the the things you and, and after years of Republican leadership in your state, you're not getting better, right? So so it needs to get better and it needs to improve. And it seems to me that you're the kind of leader that can make that happen. But we also um, know that many many of those voters that you need to to have that conversation with do not live in your major cities. They live in rural communities across Alabama. Well, I think right now in those communities, those communities are not growing. 
the places where we're the most progressive, those areas are growing. And so I see a demographic shift uh, here within the next eight years that'll put Alabama in a place to where it can. Yeah, it's kind of like when people look at Kansas and they they say, what happened in Kansas? You want to say uh, suburban Kansas City happened in Kansas. It's gotten more urban. Um, you know, people kind of think about Kansas, and Kansas has always elected moderates to the to the Senate. You know, and that's even true today. I mean, the, the, both Jerry Brand and and um, Pat Roberts aren't the most you know Tea Party conservative, but but um, I think Kansas is is like uh, your state where you see these urban areas grow. Des Moines, Des Moines. I did uh, JD. I did once say um, I I traveled to Des Moines to do a thing. Uh, uh, during a campaign season, I said no one would ever accuse me of going on a junket to Des Moines. <laughs> 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 but, but I got there, and it's a hopping, you know, it's vibrant, booming. booming, you know, kind of modern city. Yeah, and, we and got so tech in there. How have the demographics shift? Obviously, not yeah. in your district, but right. Uh, but and that's in the third district, and uh, Sydney Axty won that last cycle, and she only won Polk County. And, and that's a, a huge thing that, that I've worked with her on a, a couple things on, on how to expand on that and, and different things. And, and I, that's, I think what we're doing in Iowa is a microcosm of what's happening in America. And it's, it's about that Obama coalition. And the part that uh, I feel doesn't get talked about enough are the things that we're all passionate about is the rural areas and competing in those. And, and uh, that means uh, in those uh, areas that it's 80% Republican, that's may, that might mean we get 25%. And th- that's what we did. We shrunk the margins in, in every county uh, last cycle. We moved the needle. Uh, Trump won my district by 27, and we lost by three. And uh, it's it's and we know there's so much more room to grow, too. My high school, when I was there, we were 4% minority. Now we're 24% uh, uh, Latinx. Uh, community and so uh, it's it's we got to find people where they're at and and that means every community and and uh, it, there's just so much potential and so what I'm really telling folks are, are look at if you, if we want a pathway to the Senate uh, if we want a pathway to statewide races uh, in the next midterm. It's it's going through the fourth district and organizing this district because for years it was abandoned, uh, both by the state and in the national party. And so when we abandon these things, it's it's allows people like uh, Congressman King to be elected uh, consistently. So all of you, as I said, are in uh, challenging uh, Senate races. Your state is in a challenging Senate race. Um, Asha. When you look at North Carolina, and like you said, you know, Kay was a dear friend of mine, is a dear friend of mine, um, you know, and did a a marvelous job, but just got taken out in that really tough year six years ago. Um, How do you see um, uh, your candidate uh, basically being able to come back? And what advice would you give him on addressing concerns of your district and uh, rural North Carolina? Yep. So North Carolina, it's funny that J.D. said Iowa is a microcosm because I think North Carolina is a microcosm (laughs) and probably you may say Alabama is because that's what we're passionate about. But, you know, North Carolina is a total purple state. In 2016, we voted for Donald Trump by six points, but we also elected a Democratic governor, a Democratic attorney general, a Democratic secretary of state. And so... And that was in 16. Yeah, in 16. Exactly. And so um, 
I think that shows that many of the voters in North Carolina are up for grabs in, a, in our U.S. Senate race in 2020. And they will, if they feel inspired or they feel like you really are going to solve their problems and hear them out and focus on the issues, uh, then they'll vote for you, no matter which party you're in. And we see that in 2016, they felt that way about the Donald Trump, and they felt that way about Roy Cooper, who's our governor, who are on two different sides of the party. So I think that that's exciting as an opportunity because it shows that our Senate candidate, as long as they stay focused on solving problems, I don't think that, especially the voters we need, the voters who are going to vacillate between Obama and Trump or vote for, you know, we've done focus groups on people who were Trump and Cooper voters. Yeah. And those voters do not want to hear the talking points from either party. They want to hear people who know and care about their issues and are going to solve them and not people that are going to be just lobbing bombs across the aisle at each other on either party. And I do think that hopefully will show some reflection about what happened with our presidential vote in 2016. Um, But I, I think that that would be my recommendation for people running in our state is to Focus on the issues, let the talking points go, let the bomb throwing go, and focus on what the people of North Carolina need to continue to move our state forward. Well, I want to transition just really quickly to um, an issue, a lot of discussion when I ran in 18. Um, We ended up, and it's ironic because I told my staff, uh, we'll do okay as long as there isn't a Supreme Court vacancy. Mm -hmm. Guess what? Uh, you know, uh, Justice Kennedy announced his retirement, and that opened up a late uh, election season uh, debate, which turned into um, you know a lot of a lot of um, I think controversy. And um, I think Joe Donnelly would say this, and Claire would say it, not helpful to those of us who were who were in cycle. So I think about what are those you know those surprises that come at the end or what are what what can we anticipate and i'm curious because we now we're going through the impeachment inquiry and i think it's really important that people not say we're going through impeachment there's been no articles of impeachment filed um but but there's a lot of dialogue and and discussion about whether that impeachment has a political effect now I'm gonna I'm gonna not let you dodge this question because I'm gonna take off the table whether it's a constitutional imperative that there be an inquiry. I I think I believe there's a constitutional imperative. I think that we have enough evidence to suggest and enough of a serious um, breach of uh, uh, security for this country and serious. questionable activity as it relates to the Constitution to have that conversation. But how does impeachment play politically in rural America is a question a lot of people are going to be asking. I'm just curious about your state, and we're going to start with you, Anthony. (laughs) How do you see impeachment playing in your state, the impeachment inquiry, and, and what advice would you give to Nancy Pelosi on making sure that this doesn't it, it, given the fact it's a it's a constitutional imperative, but to manage it in a way that does not um, uh, lead to political consequences. Well, I think the messaging has to be on target. I think that you know, oftentimes we we throw about ten to thirteen reasons against the wall instead of focusing on one or two and make those stick. And so if we go into this talking about all the different things that the president has done that's illegal, I think we lose the argument at the end of the day. I think that what we have to do is zero in on one or two 
and just stay the course, but make certain that those one or two are actually impactful to the voters. It's, it's, it's among the, the higher things in their mind of, they, if someone does this, I can never forgive them. And so there, we got to focus on the unforgivable uh, pieces and stay away from all of the, the talking heads or the noise. And so I would, I would ask them to, to really approach this and uh, being very in defining that message and have evidence and not something that just appeals to the base, but something that appeals to the conscience of those individuals that are left uh, that are out there that may be, that, you know, whether they're churchgoers, that folks you see at church or they in the legal community. Mm-hmm. I think among those individuals are the, probably the most that are tuned in to something when you talk about corruption because they're looking to make certain that it's, is it something that I believe is morally wrong, Right. And or for attorneys, it's more the ethics, the extremes of ethics. And then there's no gray area. If you go into the gray area and you cannot prove it, then I think it backfires on us and it hurts some of the folks that are special in the southern states. It hurts them. Uh, more than it hurts anyone. Anyway. Because it looks like you're picking on them as opposed to holding them constitutionally accountable. You know, there's a whole lot of so what. You know, when you tell people he did this, this, and that. Well, so what? They all do it. You know, yeah. it all happens. But, you know, I, I think that when we're talking about the national security of our country, uh, it's pretty important that we recognize that this is a serious time. And I think the speaker has approached it with a kind of... Uh, sadness. I think she's used that word that it it warrants. And she, you know, I think she's been driven to this by his actions. I think she was more than willing to say, let the investigations find out, you know, about obstruction of justice under the Mueller report, which people never, never really understood, you know, what he did that was wrong there. And so it builds this kind of case that he's been the victim. And, you know, I, I think, I think that, I always find it interesting when they say, well, he's the victim. And I want to say, so you wouldn't let your kid play that game, right? You'd say, what do you do wrong? What was legitimate? What wasn't legitimate? And, you know, it never seems like we get to that point where we're having a conversation about what's legitimate bad behavior. Um, but the, I mean, I think, like I said, we focus on the issues that we feel that are the things I described. But I think that what we have to paint a picture for America about is that, We've tried to replace an old friend with a new friend, and it didn't work. It's now it's time for us to never replace an old (laughs) friend with a new friend and replacing this president because we wanted something new. And we wanted something that we felt was outside of the political atmosphere, hemisphere. And we got it, and we got burned. And so now it's time to go back to the table, and this time when we cast our vote, we have to fo- focus on an old friend that was there for us instead of a new friend that, that screwed yeah. us. So, J.D., you, you must be getting this question in your district, right? Yeah, and I, I think it's one of those things where uh, it's very partisan, uh, uh, and, and the fallback is uh, I feel people, they, they, they go to that. They and go to what? They, they go to, oh, that's just partisan politics type of thing. And, and so I think that's one area where we really need to define it. Uh, I think one way to talking about it is uh, to any Democrat who just blindly is for impeachment uh, just because they don't like Trump, that's wrong. I think we need to be honest about that. But on the other side, any Republican who just blindly says uh, he, uh, he's, he's fine, he did nothing wrong, that's wrong too. Uh, and so uh, I'd, 
it's one of those things where um, it, we're going to have to see where – I, I, I like that we're having these witnesses come in. I think uh, that visual – I just remember uh, being on a flight and having the person in front of me have CNN on and just that uh, during one of the hearings and just that visual is more uh, – uh, uh, I think it, it appeals to the senses than it just people talking about it. And I think that's how the case is going to be made. I think, you know, one of the examples that I gave and people said, well, he didn't, he wasn't, it wasn't, you know, a promise for something else. And and I had to laugh. I said, so if I came in and I said, mom, I need 50 bucks to go shopping. And she said, I need your room cleaned. <laughs> I, you know, pretty much, you know, if yeah. you want your 50 bucks, you better clean your room. Right. right? And so, so there's a, I, I think this is easier to understand. I think so. The, the question is that, that I think people, you know, if, if he had tried to extract a promise that was in fact related to national security, which is, I need you to talk to Putin or to, um, you know, be engaged with Syria, or, you know, I need you to stand with us on a resolution condemning China. Mm-hmm. You'd go, oh, well, that that's the kind of bargaining that goes on at that level. But I need you to help me dig up dirt on my political opponent is not in the security interest of this country. Right. And, and uh, so much on the uh, campaign trail right now, I talk about v- valuing, uh, we, we talk about fix, fight, and secure, fix healthcare, fight for an economy for everybody, and secure our democracy. But it's also, we got to value healthcare. We got to value uh, uh, our workers and our workforce. And the last part, we got to value our constitution. And, and our democracy. And our democracy. And and I think this is a huge part of that. And the more we're digging up, uh, I, I just like what Anthony was saying, we need to have that focus uh, because it, it can be all over the map and uh, we can really lose some of the narrative. Yeah. Ashton, what, do you, anything you want to add to this conversation before we wrap it up? The only thing I'll add is I think we'll kind of where J.D. ended. And we have seen some of our uh, congresswomen and men go back to their districts and answer from their decision to do this. And that would be my recommendation that Nancy Pelosi and everyone in the house go back to the people you represent and explain where you're coming from. Do not shy away from having difficult conversations because the people that you represent deserve to know why you support this, what you hope is going to come out of it. And ultimately I think the decision was made based on our responsibility to represent our country. And as long as we can keep putting that reason back putting in Putting country of the first. Voters, yeah. That, that we don't enjoy this, we don't want to do this, but we feel like our country demands it, and that's why we're doing it. I, I think as long as we keep that in front of the voters, we're yeah. doing what we need to. Well, I want to close with a story because it, it goes to exactly what you said. Joe Manchin comes from one, in fact— the second, if not the most pro-Trump state in the union. Um, uh, In 2013, um, uh, we came into office right after the Sandy Hook massacre um, and killing. And Joe worked with uh, Senator Toomey, and he did Manchin-Toomey expanded background checks. Okay. So understand that North Dakota and West Virginia, there isn't much difference in how we feel about the Second Amendment. But Joe did it, and he did it because he was principled, and, and I, you know, I can argue about whether it's the right policy, but he definitely um, uh, stuck his neck out. 
Guess what he did the next, the, the minute he got done with that, he went out and did town halls all over West Virginia. And he stood when people were yelling at him and accusing him of being a traitor to the Second Amendment. And he explained and he talked about the parents that he met. And he and he explained his decision. And political leadership in this country has forgotten that piece of it. That you don't always have to uh, go with the public opinion poll of your people, but you have to explain why you're not. And I think um, many of us, and I would include me in that that category, take shortcuts. And I think that's one thing that rural America doesn't like, is a, is a political shortcut. And so I think we're going to continue this conversation. Uh, we could have a whole conversation about the rural economy, and we probably will do that. But we continue to believe that um, the Democratic Party, to be a party that represents the entire country, and a party that can govern this country needs to not leave rural America behind. And that really is our focus. You guys just make me so optimistic. They're all way younger than I am. <laughs> they make me so optimistic about the future of rural representation in our country and, and democratic leadership in rural America in our country. Thank you so much Thank for you. joining Thank you. me.